brethren and sisters. What a simple thing the tabernacle was. That old tabernacle constructed in the wilderness. Simple in concept, in design, and in its method of teaching, because that's what it was designed to do. That separated from the wilderness in which the people dwelt was an area surrounded by 150 feet by 75 feet of a linen fence, seven foot six inches high. The place within was no different from the place without. It was the wilderness. But it was marked out in a particular way and by this was then transformed. It wasn't the first place to be marked out in this way but it was perhaps the, the most noticeable of all. The first that took place in the Garden of Eden when the Lord planted a garden in Eden. And so there was the first enclosed space of God wherein his people were to live and where if they'd done that which was right they would have praised and glorified his name. And then there was that other spot after they had transgressed which was outside the garden. That place where the cherubim or cherubim if you prefer were in fact uh, placed. You might just like to glance at that for a moment because um, there is something about it that is particular. That's in chapter 3 of Genesis. The promises have been made. Adam and Eve have been covered by the skin. And now they've been driven out of the garden. And it tells us, so God, in verse 24, drove out the man and he placed at the east of the garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. Now, that verse is, um, is itself amazingly simple, isn't it? Uh, the word place, it can be translated pitched as for a tent, pitching a tent. Whether there was a tent is just a matter of speculation. But it was particularly placed, wasn't it? It was the, at the east of the Garden of Eden. When we come to the tabernacle, the door is at the east. And so with the temple. And so with the door in Ezekiel's temple, the gate through which they will enter. It is on the eastern side. So there's no doubt about this being specifically set in this particular place. And the keepers were cherubim doesn't say how many either, does it? Certainly more than one. Whether two or four or six. Or whether a host, it, it doesn't say. 
but they're placed there and I take them to be angelic cherubim they were the outposts of the spirit of God but they were there for a particular purpose as we well know uh, and their purpose was to keep the way of the tree of life so the tree of life was still there at this time although it was inside the garden and that was a lesson in itself that God intended to give access to the tree to somebody otherwise he would have removed it but there was a way that was guarded and that's what this word keep means it means to guard the way to the tree of life so from the east there was a way that led to the tree of life and that was kept by the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way so that whichever way a man might come to approach unto that way to the tree of life he would, ha he would be confronted by the sword doesn't tell us why this is the first time there's any mention of a sword in scripture isn't it first time Adam has seen one but it's a sword of flame and therefore it is destructive in the extreme especially to a man who is now mortal man and to his wife it's, a, it's an, an interesting little, little encampment isn't it because that's what it is it's an encampment of God amongst the people although they were excluded from the garden God is still with them and he has placed that which indicates the way and wherever we go from then on this way will be mentioned and in some instances it will be quite discernible as the way until finally this is the way which the Lord Jesus Christ has to tread this is the way to eternal life and no other man was able to tread this way except the Lord Jesus Christ and he would pass the way of the flaming sword and of the cherubim on his way to the tree of life and it's very clear that he has this in mind isn't it because when he discusses with the thief on the cross what it is that he is about and what he is able to do for the thief on the cross and that thief on the cross was a most remarkable man for he, he had discerned so much however he'd fallen from grace and had come to this spot where he now was and that uh, just because of some sin that he had committed before God he understood the Lord Jesus Christ he said that he was righteous because in rebuking his fellow malefactor you remember he says dost thou not fear God seeing thou art in the same condemnation and we indeed justly but this man hath done nothing amiss so he knew Jesus this wasn't a, a first meeting when they were impaled alongside one another he already knew 
the Lord Jesus Christ and he knew him in a sense in which many others did not he knew him to be guiltless first king of righteousness and he had perceived it and then king of peace Lord remember me when thou comest in thy kingdom so he had perceived something else he had perceived that the Lord would go away that he would be raised from the dead that he would return and that he would return to be king no not only that he discerned that he would return to be judge because he said remember me when thou comest in thy kingdom so what this thief had perceived was considerable indeed and that the Lord could remember him for good at that time was his act of faith wasn't it considerable faith because all he could see there across the chasm between one tree and another in the darkness was a man's face with the marks of death on it and yet he could say Lord remember me when thou comest in thy kingdom and the Lord took him up in a way totally unexpected and it isn't the comma that is, that is the thing to note though doubtless it, it is right as we would want to place it verily I say unto thee today but it's what he said shalt thou be with me in paradise the Lord had in mind the garden he was going back into that place from which Adam had been driven he was going the way and he knew the way and he knew the sword was there for he knew the scripture that said awake O sword against my shepherd and yet he was going to go that way and finally he would be the one who himself would be the guardian of the tree of life and the way to it who finally would give access to others that they also might eat so this early matter here is a, a matter of very considerable interest isn't it more than that from chapter 4 it seems almost certain that that place was the place of sacrifice this place outside the garden here and I take it that all of us probably think that way because when we come to the section that runs in chapter 4 there's a whole host of detail given it's so detailed as to be quite beyond our comprehension unless we accept that Adam and Eve had been taught by God and they passed on the word to their children you just look it's not just that there are Abel and Cain there it's not just that one is a, a keeper of sheep and the other a tiller of the ground but it's that in process of time eh? you notice your margin says at the end of the days at an appointed time they were to bring the sacrifice uh, and they were to bring it notice not offer it that wasn't the first thing it says there in verse 3 that Cain brought where did he bring it to 
There wasn't anywhere to bring it to except to the appointed place of God and there was no other appointed place of God than that where the cherubim were, where the way was to the tree of life. And so they must have brought their sacrifice to that appointed place. That's what they must have done. Uh, and it's clear, isn't it, that Abel, he also brought. But when Abel comes, he doesn't just bring. And he doesn't just bring a lamb. He brings a firstborn, or a firstling, a lamb in the first year. And he brings the fat thereof. So, how to offer it had already been taught him in order to make an acceptable offering unto the Lord. And so at an appointed time, to an appointed place, with an appointed sacrifice. And so we have the beginnings of the offerings. There was no sacrifice in Eden except that which the Lord was to offer in order that they might be covered for their sins. And there was no priest in Eden unless the Lord himself by his spirit were to do it in this matter of the placing of the skins. Priesthood comes outside and begins here in this matter of each man, Abel and Cain, being his own priest before the Lord. So we now had one particular place which was the garden itself. Another particular place that is here guarded by the cherubim. We then come to the next particular enclosed place and that is the ark into which Noah and his family and the animals went. And it was no different from any other space as such, except that it was enclosed. And it was enclosed, you remember. Just like the tabernacle with walls of righteousness. So the ark of Noah was enclosed by walls of atonement, because the wood was pitched within and without. And the word for pitching is the word for atonement, as we know very well. And within they were safe within and what a lovely expression it is it says that within there were nests I don't know whether you've spotted that or whether your version has brought it out for you the little places inside were nests as though it was a place just for a bird to rest but do your own checking on that at some other time the next enclosed thing was neither by space in that way nor by time. The next enclosed thing was in fact the seed of Abraham. Marked off, delineated now for us and then marked off as we were discussing last evening by circumcision. And so here, here we have God making a separation as we had on Saturday. A separation for himself. And every one of those is by divine appointment and never by man's own devising was it never any one of these by man's own devising always of the Lord and always according to the divine specification whether it be the seed of Abraham or whether it be the size of the ark and the nature of the structure of it or, or whether it be this place outside Eden with its numberless cherubim unnumbered cherubim and uh, the flaming sword. So when we come then to the tabernacle, we're not surprised to see an enclosed space. 
we may be surprised to see how it is that it, uh, it, it has been constructed because it's been constructed almost entirely although there look as though maybe one or two exceptions almost entirely by that which came out of Egypt they brought Egypt with them in the jewels and the gold and the, the linen that they had brought and all of these were now to be marked off and as soon as they were marked off by the Lord then they became holy not before because this, this was a free will offering if they kept it it would not have been holy the same gold could have gone into the most holy place or stayed in the man's pocket it would have been the same gold there would have been no difference at all if it had been tested analytically but once it was inside it was different it had been given to the Lord it was marked off by him and that tabernacle then was a very simple and uh, elementary structure wasn't it altogether elementary the kind of thing that uh, we each draw I suppose when we're children by drawing our circles and squares and rectangles and that's what we have a rectangle with access only on one side and that's the east side and so from that east side there is just one way in and the way is the way to life and the only way to life is by sacrifice and by the cherubim it's exactly the same kind of way as that outside Eden isn't it exactly the same way it's based upon the same thought because God has arranged it in that way and there was only to be one way and the interesting thing is it, it, there was a, a very simple and brethren and sisters it is the simple lessons from the tabernacle that usually are missed and they are deeper though they are simpler deeper than many of the complications that we all start to think up the simple things the ones that you've got to look for and having found you say that's it those are the ones that teach the greatest lessons if I might just make one comment about studying the law of Moses and all of us do it at some time or another and a good exercise it is indeed let's not get it wrong because that's the easiest thing in the world to do and that is to study the law and make Christ fit it Christ came before the law he was before Abraham the law was made after Christ not Christ after the law the tabernacle was made after the Lord Jesus Christ not Jesus after the tabernacle he's got to fit nothing all that has been arranged to show what he would be it is a prophecy of what Christ would be that's how it would be when it worked out that was imperfect it had a shadow of things only had it it wasn't the real thing as we shall see and therefore it fell short in a number of ways but nevertheless the lessons were very clear and they were that everybody was outside when the walls were put up nobody was included within the walls everybody had to pitch his tent outside even Moses and Aaron their tents weren't inside they were outside there was nobody inside 
There can't be anybody inside because that's the eternal life beyond there. There's nobody inside by birth. Whatever he, position he holds and whoever he is, everybody is outside. And so it was outside the linen walls that the tents of the Levites were pitched without. And the lesson was simple, wasn't it? It is the greatest answer to the immortality of the soul, isn't it? Nobody could have it naturally because everybody's outside. There'd be no scramble to get in if you already had it. Not at all. There'd be no, way to, no need to keep the way to the tree of life if you were already immortal. And so the lesson itself was simple. The next lesson that was simple was that there was a progression as one moved through the tabernacle, wasn't there? You started with brass to silver to gold. It was simple enough, wasn't it? In the same way that you started with the people. Outside was the wilderness and the congregation. Members of the congregation could go inside those walls because it was called the tabernacle of the congregation. When you got inside, your service was rendered by a group of people, the Levites. But the Levites could only go so far and they could not proceed into the tent. The Levites were excluded and the duties were then taken up by the priests. And the priests could go so far and no further and only one of them could go beyond that point. But even when he went beyond that point, he didn't go in his official capacity at all. Because when he went on the Day of Atonement beyond the veil, he had to take off all those garments of beauty. He didn't go in with the breastplate and everything else. All those were taken off. He went beyond the veil only in garments of righteousness. So he was not now going in as the high priest of the law of Moses. He was now going in as the man who was righteous. Book of Daniel, the man of the one. That's the man. An exceptional and only man who was to go that way. And they were being told that it wasn't the priest, it wasn't the high priest who could do it. It wasn't the house of Levi, of Aaron, it wasn't the Levites, it wasn't the people. It had to be somebody else. And that somebody else was related quite clearly to what was going on inside, namely the blood on the mercy seat. But when the blood was sprinkled on the mercy seat, there was something astonishing about it. Because unlike one proceeding from the east and going toward the west, when the blood was sprinkled, it was sprinkled from the west toward the east. It was sprinkled from where God was to where the people were. It wasn't provided by them, it was provided by him. Now, these are all the simple lessons that lie. We can go into all the complications of other things. That's true. But you'll never get greater lessons than the simple ones that lie there and are the ones that, that just make the mind just bow before God that in his simplicity he sets everything out that all of us might understand. Beautifully, I and mean, you haven't got to have some special, special intelligence, have you? You haven't even got to have your Hebrew and Greek. All you have to have is your eyes wide open and to read the scripture slowly enough 
and to ask the questions as you're going along. We can all go round and we can recite the pitching of all the places, can't we? We've got our own way of remembering. But it's Judah and Issachar and Zebulun and Reuben and Simeon and Gad and so on. We, we can go round and Ephraim and Manasseh and Benjamin and Daniel, uh, Dan and Asher and Naphtali. Then we can go round and set the, the Levites around. We've all got them, we know that. But we get no benefit from that unless we now apply it in, in these special ways. It was an inconvenient thing, the tabernacle, wasn't it? Especially if you lived on the side, on the west side. You can just imagine the children. Why isn't there a door on this side, Dan? What have we got to walk all the way around for every time we want to go in? Now that raises a fundamental question. I'll ask you the question for your own thinking. Because it's a fundamental question. Was God trying to keep them in? When he got them inside? Or was he trying to keep them out? Was the tabernacle devised to keep people out? Or to let them in? Now some people speak in such a way that you're absolutely dead certain that God's trying to keep everybody out. He wouldn't have built a door there, brethren, if he had wanted to keep them out, would he? The easiest way is to have no door. Then you can't get in. He obviously wanted to give eternal life to somebody, otherwise, outside the Garden of Eden, he wouldn't have preserved the way to the Tree of Life, would he? wouldn't have preserved its way if, if nobody was ever to go that way. So he did want people in. But he had to teach them that it was only by one way that you could get in. That I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. So it was a simple, simple, simple lesson for everyone to learn. Now, that's the old tabernacle and its parts. So we know as we go in, and we can see how it is, if we gain access through that, and the door was wide, that door was wider than that which would come later. They were widely invited to go in. And they went, and noticing as they went, that there was the mediator and there was the high priest. Their tents were there, so your access was always by mediator and by priest and that was taught to them outside before they went in when they went in they noticed all the kinds of other things that the whole of the floor was just like the floor outside that there was no difference at all that it wasn't paved in any way it was earth and when they looked at all the priests their feet were unshod because there was no prescribed footwear for them But everything was, everything was in its place and there was the altar of burnt incense and the laver and the sacrifice came to the one place when it was to be offered and the Levite took it and examined it to see whether it was according to that which God required. But beyond that they didn't know except that they knew because some of them had made the parts that went beyond but they no longer had access to them because there beyond was a very simple room but it was artificially lit there was 
the seven branches of light on the left as you went in and a table on your right and a little golden altar just ahead of you and you looked and you noticed that everything that was there was in fact in some way living because there was a light and there was bread like the bread of life and there was the altar of incense but you noticed also that the only way in which that was kept alive was by things that were consumable everything there was consumable the oil, the frankincense and the twelve cakes of showbread with the frankincense on them they were all consumables, all of them obviously teaching us that this is an area where where things go pass away but they heard that beyond was a place where nothing was consumed nothing at all it never had to be refurbished in any way you hadn't to bring anything into it it was totally sufficient of itself except of course in respect of the blood which we shall mention uh, as we come towards the end so it was quite clear that there was a difference between this place and the other place and what is more every member of the congregation knew that although he couldn't go physically beyond that door he could in fact go beyond in his mind because he was already there because it was he who provided the oil for the light it was he who provided the flour for the cakes and the cakes represented him because there were twelve so he knew that that represented his present life in that first part and it was consumable it was passing away and so any Israelite who thought knew as he looked at each of these things and contemplated and the interesting thing is that the man of faith always did that and what is more the man of faith went straight into the most holy place he went right beyond into the holy place he thought in those terms. Nobody could keep his mind out. He didn't require a priest or anything to go in in his mind. And he went in in his mind. And the Psalms were full of people who went in in their minds. And that there was, some, there was something, something in all of this that was telling and foretelling something better. Lord, who shall stand in thy holy place? Who shall dwell? And nobody dwelt in that place nobody dwelt at all there wasn't even a chair to sit down nobody could sit it was a place of great restlessness and activity work never done so the sacrifices offered repeatedly year from year day to day and one thinks what must, must have gone down amongst the tents of the children of Israel the cattle driven down that way repeatedly driven down and never coming back the lessons were, were, were enormous but the the servicing of the work of the tabernacle enormous lessons for people just to contemplate for themselves and the children must have asked and said where's that ox going down why is it like that 
Dad, where's that heifer going? And why is it that colour? That's different from the others, Dad, that we've seen, isn't it? Why is it like that? Why has he got two goats, Dad? What's that man doing with the pigeons? And the lessons, the lessons for the children were, were just tremendous, weren't they? You know, we sort of spiritualise it all into, into high-flown things. But the actual fact is the lessons were very simple. And the true Israelite's father would say, that's a good question, son. That's a good question. There's something about that particular one that's coloured that way that I want to tell you something about. It doesn't stay inside. That doesn't do that at all. What's it do then, Dad? It's one that they take outside. What for, Dad? It's a special one. It's a special one that they used, used to cleanse us from death. Oh, Dad. It'd be lovely to be cleansed from death, wouldn't it? Yes, and he says... You know, isn't it interesting that it doesn't come from there inside, it's done outside. God must be telling us that it needs something additional to the tabernacle in order to do it. And then the young man says, Dad, he says, yes, son. He said, are you saying that they take it outside the camp? He said, yes, yes, that's where it goes. Dad, it's strange that it's outside the camp where the lepers are, isn't it, Dad? It makes you think, doesn't it? Because that's what was outside the camp. That was the place. We went through that on another occasion, brethren and sisters, here. So all the lessons were so, so simple and terrifyingly profound as you went day by day through all these things and then through the Israelites' calendar and all its parts. So, if you come to the 25th chapter of Exodus where sort of the beginning of the outline of these things is given to us, then we are told why it is all done. Verse 8 of chapter 25 and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them so that's the purpose of everything that is to be that's what God wanted to do the other is going to be set out in all kinds of parts in order to achieve that but that is what it's about secondly it is according to the pattern in verse 9 of the tabernacle that Moses was to be shown right according to all that I show thee and the word for tabernacle as we know is a word for dwelling or habitation isn't it that's what the word means because it says let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them and it will be a tabernacle a mishkan a dwelling place 
that's what it's going to be and then it begins to describe all the parts and we're very familiar with them brethren and sisters set out here from inside to the outside starting with the ark and working outwards when it's repeated later on after all the sin is over it starts from the outside and works in and the last thing to be mentioned then is the ark so the two things uh, the two things which appear to be repetitions are in fact in reverse order when they are set out in that way now if you have a look at verse 22 we are told concerning the mercy seat which is upon the ark that God says that it is there that I will meet with thee and I will commune with thee from above the mercy seat from between the two cherubim which are upon the ark of the testament in its most specific God was to communicate from the space the enclosed space that was made by those things he wasn't communicating from the mercy seat and he wasn't communicating from the cherubim he was communicating from the space that was within they were outside the Lord and the Lord the voice was to communicate with Moses from within and, and there when it says I will speak with thee that speaking was with Moses himself and not with other people was it because the revelation was made to the mediator not to the priest the priest received the law from the prophet he was dependent on the prophet but the prophet couldn't be the priest he was separated from that he couldn't do the work of which he spoke it was then to be done by somebody else and so God preserved this order. But that mercy seat, as we know from elsewhere, that mercy seat was itself also a throne. And God so describes it as a throne. So now we have this remarkable matter that we have united here in the tabernacle the prophet, priest and king relationship right at the heart of things. And there, the king will be the one who is of the mercy seat, blood sprinkled, and will be God provided. And all that is at the very heart of these things. Now come to chapter 36 for a little look at ourselves. Then I must go on to the, to the tabernacle new. Yes, I have. Just it's so that I've just written an article on this, which um, perhaps uh, one or two of you will be reading in the Christadelphian. But um, just let me outline just one or two particular things. If you notice in this little section here in chapter 36, um, we come to a description of the curtains, and we notice that we have two words now being used concerning the building if you notice in verse 14 it says he made curtains for the tents over the tabernacle <coughs> now we've got two words now haven't we 
we've got a tabernacle which is the dwelling the place and that is now covered and protected by the ohel the tent that which you could see was the tent within was the tabernacle and it's being described for us here you find these words are carried on in Psalm 132 and so on now these curtains were of a certain number ten for the inner layers and then when you come outside you get eleven so you can get an overlap uh, and a complete covering and they're described and it says concerning these curtains that they're constructed in a certain way and so in verse 11 it says and he made loops of blue on the edge of one curtain from the selvage in the coupling likewise he made in the uttermost side of another curtain in the coupling of the second fifty loops made he in one curtain and fifty loops he made in the edge of the curtain that was in the coupling of the second so that's understandable fifty loops fifty on each of the two curtains and he made fifty caches of gold and coupled the curtains together one to another with the tashes and so the loops that were on the edge of the curtain came opposite the loops that were on the edge of the other curtain fifty in order that you might knit together those two curtains in order to knit them together you did nothing with the loops except to pass this golden clasp through them each of them to be held by a golden clasp and so now you've got fifty clasps that hold together the curtains and when you have a, a little little look at this uh, and you just have a look in verse 13 and it says and he made fifty tashes of gold and coupled the curtains together that little word there that is the word for coupled it's just a straightforward word, word that means joined right but when you have a look elsewhere at its usage you now discover that it's teaching us another lesson as well for Jerusalem is a city which is compact together you remember that's our pray from the peace of Jerusalem psalm and that word that is compact together is this word joined when you ask yourself what is the word what is it telling us then about joined and compact what, what's the lesson that lies there when you go to psalm 94 and verse 20 you discover that it is now translated fellowship so now we see that the Lord is teaching us the lesson a simple lesson of fellowship isn't he with the curtains with the fifty loops the fifty loops it's all by himself now you know he hasn't learned the lesson of the loop has he if he'd learned the lesson of the loop he would have known that the loop wasn't just there to be awkward that was his safety because as soon as he joined to the other he's got the strength of the other and the clasp is there to hold them together so the great thing about coming into the truth is to make sure you've got a loop go about and there are better you can see that loop a mile off can't you 
They're almost loop, loop, lookers for, you know, they're everywhere they go, they're looking for a loop, in order that they might properly associate. Ah, somebody says, I've got a loop. You say, where is it? He says, here, look. You say, oh, yeah. Where's your companion's loop? Oh, it's there. He has a loop in the wrong place. He's going to have conditions of fellowship on his own, on his own basis. He's completely out of line with all the others, but there he is. I've got a loop, he said. You come down to me and join my loop. In other words, he wants to alter the pattern of the whole tabernacle <coughs> in order that anybody could fit in with his loop. The loops were just opposite. And they were knit together. Now the lesson is simple, isn't it? If ever you feel in your ecclesia that there's somebody you can't get on with, remember the loop. Remember, it might be your loop that's out of place. Jesus doesn't make loops that aren't opposite one another because that's the heavenly pattern. He doesn't want us. He sent out the disciples by two and two. He sent them out with a loop. Couldn't be clearer, could it? The Lord looked for the loops himself in his twelve apostles. Didn't he? He looked. Here are they that have continued with me in my temptation. So, so there's the, the simple matter of the dwelling with these, these loops. Just go down a little further in the chapter. You see the same lessons are taught again in another form now. And if you haven't uh, been through them just for your own purposes, they're, they're so simple. Remember those, those, uh, the walls of the actual most holy place, those wooden walls then covered with gold. Well, they had to stand up, and they stood up because they'd got, well, verse 22. One board had two tenons, equally distant one from another, and thus did he make for all the boards of the tabernacle. And he made the boards for the tabernacle, twenty boards for the south side southwards, and he made forty sockets. So there were sockets to receive the tenons, right? It's simple, you can see the lesson now already. It doesn't have to be pointed out to us, does it? It wouldn't be any use if the tenons were there and the sockets were there, would it? You know. And there are, there are brethren and sisters who say, look, I've got a marvellous socket here, look, look at it. You know, I'm just waiting for a, for a tenon to fit in it. And you say, well, why don't you get under a tenon then? Oh, he said, I don't want to move my socket. Take all this time to make it. But it's a useless socket. It isn't designed for fellowship, it's designed for awkwardness. And there are, there are brethren and sisters who live just by sheer awkwardness. Sheer awkwardness. You've met them. And, uh, interestingly enough, that may be what they're saying about you. We've met them. Because we're all that bit awkward sometimes. We all just shift a little bit. It's the same in an argument, if you have an argument, isn't it? You say, oh well, let her speak to me first then. I'm not going to speak to her first. I've shifted my loop. I, and there's no way in solving a quarrel by doing that, is there? You've got to make your loop. Oh, yes, but I mean, after all, why should I go showing my loop to her? She's kept hers closed all this time. Now, you know, and it, it, it's so simple if you look at it in the terms of an actual figure, brethren and sisters. You see, when we keep our sockets in the wrong place, 
or when we use our loop as though it were ours we've forgotten what the purpose is it isn't our loop it's his we haven't got command over it at all just, I'll just show you one word just to make sure for you just have a look in verse 13 and he made fifty tashes of gold and coupled the curtains one to another with the tashes so it became one tabernacle that's what he set out with in chapter 25 one tabernacle that's what the object is of all these things you'll find other versions make it even plainer than that and they say so the tabernacle was one that was the purpose of the loops that the whole thing might be one the curtains were not to be separated they were to be brought right together so they were one curtain they were not just individual ten curtains they were now one curtain now joined together in the two fives brought together in this wonderful way now the tenon it's interesting the word for the tenon is very interesting do you know what it means? it means the open hand not a closed one an open hand that's what the word is but that's what fellowship is about isn't it? it's the open hand it's, it's the hand that can receive and can give you can't do it that way can you? shake hands you know no way is there there's no way you can do it and you say well I feel stronger that way of course you do you can hit him with it you can't shake hands that way can you and so it's the open hand that's what it is now, and the other point about this is that um, if you go to Leviticus chapter 6 verse 2 don't do it now and you won't be surprised how is this same word translated tenon the open hand you're right fellowship that's how it's translated Leviticus 6 so there can't be any doubt about the lesson that's being taught us can there the tabernacle stood by fellowship it was a fellowship of all the people who provided everything but it stood by fellowship it would fall down without it wouldn't it every time it was erected the tenons were opposite the sockets what about the sockets then well it's a straightforward word that word sockets it just means strength foundation I said well I can understand that you know what it's derived from it's derived from Adon for Lord there's no other foundation than the Lord is there it shouldn't surprise us should it it's got to look for it to know how, how everything is working in this tabernacle all, all the things are pointing beyond itself to this other other and better and final tabernacle which must now occupy us just for a few minutes John chapter 2 John chapter 2 I could spend ages with the tabernacle itself I'd spend ages walking round it I'll tell you because it's a place of delight now let's look at the other John chapter 2 and there the Lord goes to the temple in verse 13 found in the temple those that sold oxen and sheep and doves and the changes of money sitting when he had made a scourge of small cords he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen 
and poured out the changers' money and overthrew their tables and said unto them, Take that so does, take these things hence. May not my father's house and house of merchandise. And the disciples remembered that it was written, The zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. Then answered the Jews and said unto him, What sign showest thou unto us, seeing that thou doest these things? And Jesus answered and said unto them, Destroy this sanctuary. That's what the word is. Make me a sanctuary for me to dwell in. And here it is. In the Lord Jesus Christ destroy this sanctuary and in three days I will raise it up and they said forty and six years this temple been in building and so on but he spake of the sanctuary of his body alright how long had that been in the making eh how long had that body been in the making oh I know it just took the normal time it wasn't forty six years was it it was way way back right back in the mind of God that's where it was whose goings forth are from of old from everlasting that's how long so that, that's how the, the Lord thinks of himself as a sanctuary for God now you ask the question is that how we should think of ourselves as a sanctuary for God well just have a look at First uh, Corinthians 3 and um, see what you think about this I know these are, this is a passage which with, with, with one other we may shy away from or provide an explanation which is convenient but not convincing. 1 Corinthians 3 and verse 16 Know ye not that ye are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you? If any man defile the temple of God him shall God destroy. For the temple of God is holy which temple ye are. So, we have a look at this. Uh, and this is in the plural. This is not in the singular here. It's not talking about each individual. This is ye. This is plural. And it tells us that uh, together we are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in us. Now, what do you make of the Spirit of God dwells in you? Right? We've got to explain what it is what do we make of it we could say oh well this is first century this is spirit gifts well that's a gratuitous comment and it's not proven is it some might say well it's the Holy Spirit direct from heaven and that's not proven either is it what is it that holds us together it is that which God has provided that which lies in the midst of us with the blessing of God is that which he has provided which isn't provided by flesh it's provided by spirit what we've got are the qualities that have been given to us by God through his spirit which is made known to us clearly in his word by which we can produce in ourselves godlike qualities it is a holy spirit 
nothing to do with naked power of God from heaven. That would destroy everything. It's nothing to do with that. What he's saying is that we are a sanctuary for God. How was the Lord Jesus Christ a sanctuary for God? He was that in being God-like. He was a godly person. He was a righteous person. He said, you know, about other people that they were, they were of their father the devil. Because that's, they were like all those things. That which holds us together is the Spirit of God. That which we've learned of him, that which the children of Israel grieved is Holy Spirit. They didn't want to know the qualities of God at all. And what holds us together are the qualities of the character of God made known to us in his revelation. And there's no great mystery as though we're deriving some power direct from heaven because that, that wouldn't, as you'll see, that won't fit the illustrations. That's not what is being spoken about. This, what is being spoken about here is and those that worship God must worship him in spirit and in truth. It is a spiritual thing and not a carnal thing. This is Romans 8. It is the mind of the spirit and not the mind of the flesh. That's what there is. And if we have that, then we have the blessing of God. God dwells amongst us in the sense of his word and that which we learn of it. And also we rest under his care and with his blessing. Now just come to chapter 6 and you'll see it again. Exactly the same thing is spoken here. Again in the plural, although quite clearly when you look at it here, it is the individual who is being spoken about as well. For here we read in verse 19, What know ye not your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, which is in you, which ye have of God? Alright? Well, what is he actually saying to these people? He's actually telling them, verse 13, that the body is not for fornication but for the Lord. And then he says, verse 15, Know ye not that your bodies are the members of Christ? You see, your bodies are the members of Christ. Not something else. Your body, your actual body, is a member of Christ. This is what there is in Romans 12, where it says, Present your bodies a living sacrifice. is isn't just a question of the mind. The body belongs to God as well. This is no longer ours. So he now says, Now tell me, he said, Do you think you can take this and join it to a harlot? Do you think that can happen? Can you take this and join it to a harlot when what's supposed to be in here is of God and she is not? If you do that, you'll be flesh with flesh. If you do the other, you'll be spirit with spirit. You'll be now according to the word of God and according to all that God has blessed you with. So this matter, which is here, and also, you'd just like to look at it because it's in Ephesians chapter 2 as well. Um, where it's set out again for us. where the matter of the tabernacle is now developed in another form. I'm not going to go into it now, but uh, it's being developed in another form in verse 18. For through him, that is the Lord Jesus Christ, we both, that is Jew and Gentile, have access by one Spirit unto the Father. 
Now what it is telling us is that we don't have access by any fleshly route at all. The fact that you are a Jew doesn't make it easier for you to get to, to God. There is only one way and that is the way of the Spirit. The way that the Spirit has laid down. And that is in Jesus. And all that there is to do with him and his death and his teaching. And when you enter into the body of Christ that is what you're related with. You're now related with spiritual things and not carnal things. And it's turned again in the next chapter. Verse 4 For there is one body and one spirit even as you were called in one hope of your calling. And, you know, as you go through Corinthians, you see this is repeated time and time again. And it's not some great mystical thing. And it's not some mysterious thing either. And it is not the Holy Spirit being turned on and coming into us to do something. What God is saying is, look, the only way to produce the fruits of the Spirit is by a spiritual, fruit of the Spirit, is by a spiritual process. And the only way you can have the spiritual process is to have the things that are of me. That which you learn of me, that which you have both seen and heard and learned of me, do, as Paul said. That's it. And that's the spiritual process. So what keeps our lives clean, as an ecclesia in Pine Town, has got nothing to do with any fleshly rules at all. It's got to do with the rules of the Spirit. That's what keeps the ecclesia what it is. It is the Spirit of God. And using Spirit in that which means that which God is in the real, ultimate sense what he is in his name in his mercy and goodness and grace and truth and those are the things that dwell in us and therefore to go and have wrong associations and young people one must learn that we haven't got to have these wrong associations and it's better to make absolutely certain that somebody says that we don't in this age in which we live it's just regarded as a, as a casual thing. You've only got to go a hundred yards down the road and you already have passed two or three people who've had casual relations with other people. Relations of the most intimate kind. And Paul says, you can't do that. Not with this that belongs to Christ. It isn't yours to do that with. And what's more, if you do that, you haven't got within you then the truth. So we need to learn straightforward lessons and to understand them together. So these spirit verses that run through are easy to understand once we take the meaning of spirit beyond just power into that which is describing what God is. God is spirit. And the things that we have are of God. They are spiritual things they're powerful things because God's made them powerful by the way that we have been taught as to what they are and they are the things that instruct us are they not and also keep us clean in our daily lives so that we know that we shouldn't do these things and we don't want to do these things we teach our children the same way right Hebrews chapter 8 I must just now what time do you want me to conclude by the chairman five minutes ago right five minutes more you don't have to skip the cake or whatever it is right we're in Hebrews chapter 8 and Hebrews chapter 9 because I asked somebody last night I'm going to ask you now answer this question what did you think the subject was about when it said the first and the last 
tabernacle or the first and the second tabernacle what did you think it was about? you probably said to yourself well I take it that uh, and to quote somebody well I thought this was the tabernacle of Moses and uh, then the tabernacle of Christ and the saints and I thought that was the first and this was the last well that is nearly right but it isn't quite right because the first and second tabernacle are not used in that way in the scriptures we'll just have a look in a moment it's interesting Hebrews chapter 8 you'll notice that it says we have in verse 1 such an high priest who is set down on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens a minister of the true of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle which the Lord pitched and not man so now we've got a contrast between another tabernacle which is pitched by God and not pitched by man the other one was erected by Moses wasn't it it was pitched by man it was made by man and God doesn't dwell in temples made with hands so that can't be the final place it doesn't fit what Solomon said and which Paul repeated must be some other lesson and so it's got here this little expression which the Lord pitched and not man and we shall discover as we go along that what it does is to link this to another expression which makes it even plainer the expression, you know the expression well enough which is without hands without hands it's there in Daniel 2 isn't it the stone cut out of the mountain without hands and it goes right on through scripture without hands in other words it's got nothing to do with human hands in Isaiah chapter 8 it's called writing with a man's pen when it's speaking about man when it's speaking about Christ it says I will engrave the engraving thereof and you have the distinction drawn so here is this other tabernacle then which and now it's described in verse 4 a little further by saying if he were on earth he should not be a priest seeing that there are priests that offer gifts according to the law who serve unto the example and shadow of heavenly things as Moses was admonished to God when he was about to make the tabernacle for see saith he that thou make all things according to the pattern showed thee in the mount have you ever thought what Moses saw in heaven have you ever thought what he saw I, I've always thought that he saw the tabernacle that was to be made he saw it there I think there's more to it than that I think what he also saw was the heavenly tabernacle he saw the original of which that was a copy I don't mean the original like that but the original which is this that we're reading about the final thing that was the heavenly arrangement 
And I think Moses saw that too. Now we come to chapter 9, with which uh, our chairman says we must now come to an end. And you'll see that the first and second tabernacle are not, in fact, the mosaic tabernacle and this tabernacle that's constructed of the believers with Christ. Not that at all. Verse 1. Then verily the first covenant had also ordinances of divine service and a worldly sanctuary, a sanctuary of this world. That's what the Mosaic one was. For there was a tabernacle made the first wherein was the candlestick and the table and the showbread which is called the sanctuary and after the second veil the tabernacle which is called the holiest of all so you see there are two tabernacles the first is that first place with the candlestick the golden uh, altar of incense and the table of showbread and the second tabernacle is the most holy place well that's interesting isn't it and you might say to yourself well I'm not so sure that that is exactly what it means well you see that it is what it means and that the first one is the holy place and the second one is the other and they are spoken of as two tabernacles by Paul here because he's drawing special lessons just follow and you'll see how interesting this becomes because he now repeats it in verse 6 now when these things were thus ordained the priests went always into the first tabernacle accomplishing the service of God but into the second went the high priest so we were right in distinguishing those two as two tabernacles now isn't that interesting because it's surprising it's not what you'd expect is it well I know you're perhaps looking at it and saying well I'm not even sure he's right now well let's just follow it a little further because it's made absolutely plain because when it says in verse 7 but in the second went the high priest alone every year not without blood which he offered for himself and for the errors of the people the Holy Spirit this signifying that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was standing now ask yourself what's meant by the first tabernacle and the instinctive thing is to say the mosaic tabernacle but you can't do that in this context it's got, it must mean the holy place as distinct from the most holy place now that's interesting now you have to pursue a little further in order to get the full meaning out of it and here it is you see that expression there while as the first tabernacle was yet standing literally that reads while as yet the first tabernacle had standing had status alright 
So long as the first tabernacle had status, that holy place had status, there was no way into the most holy. But when it hadn't got status, then there was a way into the most holy. How did it lose its status? It lost its status by taking away the veil. And as soon as the veil was gone, now there is no distinction. That's, what he's, that's, what he's, that's the point that he's making here. Now let's go through the simple things that were involved. Because if you take these two parts and ask what are the two parts then? Well the two parts are the life of Jesus before he died, there's his death in the veil, and there's his immortality where he now stands. When he looks now back, the veil is rent. And so no longer do you look through the veil. And so what it says in the beginning of Hebrews is that we see Jesus crowned with glory and honour. There's no veil there. Otherwise we couldn't see him. That first place no longer has standing. That's what held us back. Truly, that first place in a way represented the mosaic tabernacle. It represented more than that. It represented all the consumable, the mortality. And there was no way, so long as that place had standing where the priesthood was working in the mortality area, there was no way in which there was a way to everlasting life. But once the veil had gone, now there is a way. So, let's do it all again and watch just for ourselves now. Because in one sense, we are standing in the consumable area, aren't we? That's where we're standing. In our own, we, we think of ourselves as being in the holy place, but not the most holy. And that's true in one sense. Because we've got to go to the next stage, which is to immortality, which is with Christ. But in actual fact, in our thinking, all that is now in one. We're actually with him. Your life is hid with Christ in God. You're not in the consumable area at all. You're now lodged in the other. This is Psalm 91. He that dwelleth in the secret place of the Most High. That's where it is. We've come to the mercy seat and that's on the other side. We've reached it. We came to it because there it was blood sprinkled and we knew all that. That's what took away our sins. So we are associated with that which is beyond the veil. That offering that is once and for all. But yet we're, we're not caught up in it, are we? Not yet caught up into that condition. Therefore, let's just follow it and then you'll see it completed. This is the last reference, Brother Chairman, and that is in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And then notice how beautifully this just takes up a thread out of Hebrews 8 and 9. For we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, we have a building of God and house not made with hands. There it is. It's of the heavenly tabernacle. Where is the house? When Christ who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. It's Christ returning with immortality. Not that this house is to be taken away, but it's to be made one with the other, clothed upon 
with immortality, as it now says. For in this we groan, earnestly designed to be clothed upon with our house which is from heaven. If so be that being clothed, we shall not be found naked. Revelation and uh, Genesis. For we that are in this tabernacle do groan, being burdened. Not for that we will be unclothed, but clothed upon, that mortality might be swallowed up of life. So the tabernacle figure is now carried into our own experience. And in our own experience we have a framework which is consumable. It's of this part. We've reached this part. In our hearts we've reached the other part. We've gone right through and seen. And we've seen all that we need. We've seen the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We've actually seen the mercy seat and the glory, Paul says in the preceding chapter. But we're waiting to be caught up into that. And what happens then? Song of Solomon? Isn't it beautiful? We are a garden enclosed. And the Lord has completed all his purpose. Right back to the very beginning. And we're there with the tree of life. Well that's what he is. And the tabernacle has now revealed its essence and its prophecy and promise.